Good morning, sleep-in service. Good to see you guys. Glad you're here. If you've got a Bible with you, Revelation 19. If not, just grab your outline. You can follow along. If I haven't met you, my name is Grant, one of the teaching pastors. We have a lot to cover this morning. I became a pastor because Jesus told me to, and also because of five major statements that I get to make from time to time that I consider to be sacred space. The five statements are, the Bible says... I now baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, the body, of blood of, blood, body and blood of Christ for you, ashes to ashes, dust to dust, which I've said way too much in the last three weeks, and I now pronounce you husband and wife. I love those statements. The last one, I now pronounce you husband and wife, is usually a culmination of a really long journey that is represented in the two people that are standing in front of me. And that moment of pronouncement, I now pronounce you husband and wife, is usually the culmination of a lifetime of relationships, bad dates, blind dates, learning, planning, dreaming, and then they finally get to that moment at the altar. I love to get to weddings early. I like to go and check in on my groom and see how they're doing. I usually take their pulse which is usually like <laughs> ripping through the roof. I love watching guys squirm because they're all sweaty in their tux, you know, and he's freaking out. And his biggest question is, I wonder if she's actually going to show. That's their biggest question. So I always check on him and then I go check on the bride. And she's always like beautiful and glowing and usually distracted by some little insignificant detail that she just wants to make sure so that everything goes perfect. And, and, you know, they're doing the last of her hair and her makeup, making sure everything is perfect. And then I leave her and I go up and, and all the guests are seated. We walk to the end of the aisle and I stand there and then the groom brings in, you know, normally the parents and then he comes and stands beside me and then we wait. <laughs> and we wait. And he sweats a little more. And he starts looking at me, and then finally she shows up. She's revealed. It's a revelation of the bride in that moment. And he's just like, he's so relieved because she actually came. And then he sees who's with her. Because <laughs> her dad's staring at him. Like, I know who you are. You better do this right by my little girl. And we get all the way to the end, and I ask the question, who gives this woman to be married to this man? And then we wait. <laughs> and if it's a good dad, he makes him wait a really long time till he says, her mother and I do. And then the guy breathes and then he goes and gets her. And then he stands there and he has to listen to me talk at him for a couple of minutes. And I can tell what's going on in his brain. He's thinking, Grant, hurry up before she changes her mind. <laughs> and then they make a vow and a covenant before God. And then their family throws them a party. And it's a good thing. Here's what's amazing to me. That moment is not the whole story. It's an important part of the story, but it's really a culmination of a love story that God's been writing before time even began. The love story that God wrote with his own creation is interesting to say the least because the Bible begins and ends with the wedding. At the first wedding, it's awkwardly beautiful. It's beautiful because man and wife are united together in one flesh. It's awkward because they're both naked. Read your Bible, okay, all right? So it's awkwardly beautiful, and then man sins, and the relationship's been a train wreck ever since. We know this, right? Sin messes up relationship. True? It's true. So we ask questions. Why didn't God just remove sin and keep the relationship pure? Why did, why did God give Adam and Eve a brain and a will and a heart? I mean, why didn't he just make them robots? Those are all good questions, to which I would answer, I don't know. That's the way God did it. 
He did give his creation brains and hearts and wills. And, and man used those gifts, unfortunately, in the wrong way. But the story continues to this day. Let me give you the entire story of humanity in a nutshell. I would put it this way. God steps into the train wreck of humanity to redeem and restore his relationship with his own creation. That's the story in a nutshell. We've been walking through Revelation 1 through 18. We have gone through some heavy, heavy lifting. And now we've come to the moment we've all been waiting for. It's finally here. But before we get to that moment of pronouncement, we're going to actually go back to the backstory for just a second. Over the last two months, if you've been walking with me, we've opened up our hand and we've covered the letters to the churches. We've covered the throne room of heaven. We've covered the introduction of all of the different characters that come together to make up the end times. We've talked about the rapture of the church and all of the different viewpoints on that. We've talked about the tribulation period of seven years that starts out really good and then goes terribly wrong. And now we've come to a moment, but before we get there, I'd like to separate it into two stages. What's happening in heaven and what's happening on earth. So here's what's been happening on earth since the followers of Christ have been taken out of this broken planet. Here's what's been happening on earth. We've seen the rise of the Antichrist. Okay? This political and religious leader, he's gaining momentum and force. In the first three and a half years of the tribulation, actually some good stuff happens. He actually creates Middle Eastern peace. That's a big deal because there has never been peace in the Middle East. But halfway through, he flips on Israel. And it goes terribly wrong. The false prophet is creating a new religion that worships both the Antichrist and Satan himself. People can still come to Jesus during this time period, but it costs them their life. They die for that decision. Those who chose to reject God outright are subjected to judgment. We've waded through this stuff. It's been heavy. And I keep coming back to the same point. If you don't want to meet God in his judgment, meet him in his grace. Meet him in his mercy. But those that reject God outright, they have been subjected to, to, to all different kinds of judgment. We've talked about seven letters, seven seals, seven bowls, seven judgments that God pours out on those who reject him. This culminates. Last week, we learned about the demise of Babylon. We saw last week, Revelation 17 and 18, this woman, ladies, don't be offended, okay? Just because this woman is cast in a negative light in Revelation, there have been plenty of male villains along the way too. But last week we saw this, this woman who represented the Babylonian mindset and the Roman mindset, and we were a little offended when God held up a mirror to our souls and we saw how many similarities there were between her and us. We saw at the end of... Chapter 18, how she's brought to her knees because she refuses to live to God's standard. And then the seven-year period comes to a close with a horrific human war. The Bible describes the battle of Armageddon as the kings of the east. Now think about that. So here's Israel. What's to the east? The kings of the east coming against ten kings who have allied themselves with the Antichrist and Satan himself. Revelation 9.16 says the kings of the east, just their army alone will have 200 million soldiers. Now that's a clue. Because if we look at this and we know that some people will look at this book and say this was only written for the first and second century believers. Here's the problem with Revelation 9.16. If you're in the first century, there weren't even 200 million people on the face of the earth. Oops. Now, today, let me ask you a question. Would it be possible for nations to the east to rally an army with 200 million soldiers? Yep. Don't freak out. Eyes on Jesus, okay? Eyes on Jesus. 
So I've listed all the scriptures in your outline. If you want to go and find out if I'm lying to you or not, Daniel 9, Matthew 10, Matthew 24, Luke 21, Revelation 6, 7, 11, 14, and 20. It's not a good scene on earth, so let's shift it to what's happening in heaven because that's important. When the church is taken out of the earth, they go to something called the marriage supper of the Lamb. Revelation 19, 1 Corinthians 11, Ephesians chapter 5. Pastor Todd read a portion of this scripture. When the church is taken, they go to a wedding. Here's what's different about this wedding. In modern weddings, the focus is all on the bride. And it should be. When I got married, all the focus was on Laurel, and it was beautiful. But at this wedding, the focus is not on the bride, it's on the bridegroom. Here is what I'm going to say about the marriage supper of the Lamb. The bride wears white. The bride wears white, not because she deserves it, but because the bridegroom has made her pure with forgiveness. For those of us that are believers, that have been forgiven, though our sins be as scarlet, they will be washed as white as snow. That's a moment for us where we go, oh, it's so beautiful, because the bridegroom gives us back a purity we don't deserve. Maybe you've been to a wedding and you've heard the pastor talk from Ephesians chapter 5. It says, husbands, love your wives. That's good. Guys, we should live to that level. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle, or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. Jesus restores the purity of his bride because she's captured his heart. He loves her. And because he's God, he can forgive and restore and redeem even, even the most broken story. Years ago, I did a wedding once for an amazing couple. They had the most unique story that I've ever heard in premarital counseling. He was actually a virgin. He had saved himself from marriage all the way through. Gentlemen, it can be done. He had actually saved himself. And so he's sitting there and he'd fallen in love with this girl. Some of you have heard this story before. A part of her story was she had just recently come to Christ. She was just a new creation in Jesus. Not very old at all in her faith. And a part of her broken story was that before she met Jesus, she'd actually made it through university working as an escort. So you've got a guy who saved himself and a girl who had an incredibly broken story that only Jesus could put back together again. And it was difficult for them. I'll never forget the tension that came into my office when we would discuss their past and how they were going to put those things back together again. It was unbelievably tough because she just had so much shame. And she was dealing with it as best a human being could, but she had so much shame. And, and, and at times I wondered whether or not they were actually going to make it to the altar. And then one day at a premarital session, this guy blew my mind and captured her heart. So I want you to picture this. So it's me and the two of them in my office. And he turns to her and he just ignores the fact I'm even in the room. And he looks at her and this is what he says. I will never forget it. On our wedding night... I'm going to give you something you have never experienced before. Now, if you're the third person in the room with that conversation, that's awkward. <laughs> I mean, I'm red. I'm like, yeah, I don't know if I should be here or should I leave? You guys need a moment. I have no, I mean, I just, mm, 
and knowing her past, I turn a little red and she starts to cry. And then he finished it. He said, on our wedding night, when we love each other fully and completely, I'm going to give you something you have never experienced before because I'm not going to leave. I'm going to stay forever because you have captured my heart. And in that moment, I saw God just restored and redeemed, and he just poured out purity on this unbelievable couple. I love that moment. When Jesus takes his bride, he will restore her purity, and he will never let her go because we have captured his heart. There's something else that happens during this time. It's known as the Bema Reward Seat of Christ. You can check it out, Matthew chapter 10, 2 Corinthians 5, 1 Corinthians 3. People get confused in the end times because there's actually two separate judgments. One is the great, right, great white throne judgment. We'll talk about that next week. It's not good for those who don't know Christ, okay? And then there's another judgment that's for believers only. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 10, I know it's out of Revelation, but let me give you some context, says this, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive what is due for him, things done while in the body, whether good or bad. And that makes us go, ugh. The word bad here can literally be translated empty or worthless. It does point to a moment when God is going to reveal everything we've done, both good and empty. The character of our service is going to be revealed. That's why we should pay very close attention when we read 1 Corinthians chapter 3. This is a word to believers. But each one of you should build your life with care. For no one can lay a foundation other than the one that's already been laid, which is Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on a foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, let me stop for a second, or the building materials that the world would say you should build with, If they build with those, their work will be shown for what it is, because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and fire will test the quality of each person's work. And if what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. There it is. If it's burned up, the builder will suffer loss, yet may be saved, even though as one escaping through the flames. What is God saying to his kids? He's saying, build your life wisely. Use the right material. Don't use a building list that the world is going to give you that says will fulfill your soul because we know that will just leave us empty. We learned that last week from Babylon and Rome. Think eternity, not temporary. Now, this is where it gets really, really hard because people are just like, so if I'm going to be held accountable for the things that I did wrong, what happened to that verse where Jesus said, as far as the east is from the west so far, my sins have been removed from me. I don't know how to put that stuff together. I picture it this way in my head, okay? Just walk with me in the twisted world of my imagination for a little bit, okay? I picture one day I'm going to arrive in heaven. My prayer is that I don't have enough energy to run across the finish line. I would prefer to crawl. And to fall exhausted into the arms of my Savior 
and hear those sweet words. Well done. Good and faithful servant. And then I picture in my brain God carrying me to a chair and we're going to sit down and have a conversation. And in that moment, I will have a very deep, respectful awe and fear of God because He is God and I am not. And I picture Him clearing His throat and saying, okay, Grant, let's start with what you got right. And we go through it piece by piece. The moments when my humanity... And my selfishness got pushed to the background and I actually chose the way that Jesus would have for me. And we go all the way through that stuff. Not that there will be very, very much of it. All of the pieces. And when we're done, I picture him closing the book. And I'm still scared because in my brain I'm thinking, oh, the other book is coming. With all the stuff that I did wrong. And when God doesn't pull out a second book, I'm a little freaked out. And so I ask the question, what about everything I got wrong? What about everything I did for my own glory or my own selfishness? What about all the stuff, that big pile of stuff? What about that? And I picture my father looking at me, my heavenly father looking at me and saying, yeah, Jesus and I talked about all that stuff. And it's all covered. Now, now, should I use that kind of grace as an excuse to go out and do whatever I want to and lead an empty life that's filled with worthlessness? Or should I use that grace to motivate me to use my life for His honor and glory? I choose option number two. How about you? I mean, that's what Scripture says we're supposed to do. Okay? So the rewards are handed out. And then finally, we get to the moment we've all been waiting for. Okay, that was all introduction. <laughs> oh, boy. The moment we've all been waiting for, the return of Jesus Christ. Verse 11, Pastor Todd read it. I'm going to read it again because I think it should be read at least multiple times. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. Unlike Satan, who is unfaithful and a liar... With justice he judges and wages war, and his eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. And he has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. And he's dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses, dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Let me ask you again, what color does the bride wear? White. Because the groom says she can. Verse 15, coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. And he treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And on his throne robe and on his thigh, he has this name written. King of kings. Lord of lords. I read that and I'm like, that's my Jesus. That's the one that saved me, not at my best, but at my worst. And he steps out of heaven into the train wreck of humanity. And he comes with his pure and perfected bride to reclaim what is rightfully his. And he comes with justice. And he declares in that moment, enough is enough. And he says right now, as of right now, the day of grace is closed. The day of waiting is over. The day of sin is broken. The day of death is dead. And he returns in the fullness of his true identity as king of kings and Lord of lords. Scripture says, 
at the end of Revelation 19 that God, when he comes back, deals with the Antichrist and the false prophet. I have no biblical basis for this. It's just a twisted part of my imagination. But I see this warrior king striding back into earth, picking up the Antichrist in this hand, the false prophet in this hand, and saying, you little punks. You thought you were in charge. You thought you were running this show. This is not your show to run. This is my world, my kingdom, my children, my creation, and now I'm going to set it right. So you can shoo yourself off to hell where you belong, and in that moment, I'm going to be standing behind Jesus going, yeah, what he said. You can picture heaven any way you want to. That's how mine starts. I'm just saying. The Bible says Jesus will return. If you don't believe me, Revelation 19, Mark 14, Mark 13, Matthew 24, Luke 21, 1 Thessalonians 4, Revelation 1 and Titus chapter 2. And the Bible says this is how he will come back. Ready? Here it comes. Briefly. He will come back publicly. Mark chapter 10 says, At that time men will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory, and he will send his angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth, and to the ends of heaven. He's going to come back and everyone will see him. Now, some of you are like, how in the world is that going to work, Grant? Because you know, if he only comes back from here, one side of the world won't. Yeah. I don't know. How do you walk on water? <laughs> Can we just put that in the miracle category? Can we just say that God is bigger than direction or one side of the earth or the other side of the earth? Here's what I know. Last week, Pastor John was here from Tanzania. The God that we prayed to is both here and in Arusha, Tanzania, instantaneously right now. Because he's bigger than our understanding. Revelation 1 says, look, he's coming in the clouds and every single eye will see him. He will not come back privately. He will come back publicly. And in that moment, we will have an opportunity to know if we met him in his grace or we met him in his judgment. And as of today, because we're still here, the choice is still up to you. Choose well. He'll come back publicly. Secondly, he will come back bodily. The Bible says he'll come back in exactly the same way that he left. Why? Because God is a God who's always coming full circle. He died bodily, he was resurrected bodily because he wanted to complete the full circle. He left bodily, he's going to return bodily because he wants everyone to be able to know and see that he is both king and Lord. Thirdly, the Bible says he'll come back forcefully. Revelation 19 says, the armies of heaven were following him, riding white horses dressed in white linen, white and clean. The Bible says he's coming back to judge the nations. We've seen pictures of Jesus all the way through Scripture. We've seen him as a gentle shepherd, lovingly calling his people to himself. We've seen him as a great teacher who has taught people the way that God wants us to live. We've seen him as a brilliant philosopher teaching people that there's a better, higher way to live our lives. We've seen him in so many different pictures, but make no mistake, in Revelation 19, he comes back as a warrior. A warrior who is bent on winning. A warrior who is bent on reclaiming what is rightfully his. And he brings all of the wedding guests, he brings his bride with him. You say, what does that mean, Grant? It means this. God doesn't want you to miss the wedding. You have an invitation. 
He wants to write your name in the Lamb's book of life so that one day you'll have an opportunity to participate in this moment. He will come back as a warrior and ultimately he will come back triumphantly. Final blank in your outline. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 says this. Now I know some of you are going to go, whoa, 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 Grant, that's a rapture verse. Just stick with me all the way through, okay? Paul said, for the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will be with the Lord forever. Whether you see that as a tribulational verse or whether you see that as a millennial verse or a second return of Christ verse, I don't want you to miss the last phrase. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Jesus is coming back. If you're a follower of Jesus, that should encourage you. That should encourage you to understand that his return means we get to go home. His return means no more tears, no more sickness, no more cancer, no more divorce, no more hurt, no more pain. Just Jesus. That encourages me. Does something more than that. It gives me courage. To live in this broken place right now. Not just so I can merely survive, but so that I can thrive and actually invite other people to the wedding. I mean, Christian, can I ask you an uncomfortable question? You got invited to the wedding. How loving can you claim to be if you keep all of the other invitations that God gave you to yourself? You know what we're here for? We're here to give away wedding invitations. We're here to invite the people that God's placed in our life to not miss a wedding. We want every, the Bible says, for it is not God's will that any should perish. God wants all of us to come. That encourages me, that gives me courage. The Bible's got a word for this. The bodily visible return of Jesus is the Christian's blessed hope. I love those words. I learned Titus chapter 2, verses 13, and the verses that followed way back when I was an Awana kid. It was one of my favorite verses. The Bible says this, For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. And it teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions, which means I'm going to say no to a Babylonian mindset. I'm going to say no to a Roman mindset. I'm going to say no to the world's standards. I'm going to say no to the way the world says this is how you're supposed to live a life. And I'm going to actually believe that God's got a better way. And instead to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, what comes next? While we wait for the blessed hope. The appearing of our glory, of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own. The verse doesn't end there. They are his very own, and I quote, who are eager to do what's good. Our hope should make us eager to do what's good. In fact, I'm going to tell you something. If the only thing that comes out of revelation for you is fear, then we missed it. If the only thing that comes out of revelation for you is a chronology chart, 
then we missed it. If the only thing that comes out of Revelation for you is a compulsive need to dig a bunker in your backyard, we missed it. Because that's not hope. That's not hope. If the only thing that comes out of Revelation is a compulsion for you to walk downtown with a sign that says the end is near, we missed it. If we get to the end of Revelation and we walk out of here compelled and motivated to do what's good, then we got it. Then we got it. I summed it up this way in your outline. The second coming of Christ should produce an urgency for God's children. This is urgent work. It should produce an urgency for God's children to share the message of Jesus so that every single person can share in the hope of Jesus. We should have an urgency. You know why? Because we don't know when he's coming back. I don't know when he's coming back. Neither do you. Could be today. That would work for me. I think today would be a great day. All I know is this. Scripture says one day God will crack the sky. God the Father is going to crack the sky of this broken planet and say to his son, go get them. Bring them home. Bring them home. Rally the forces and let's go take care of business. Because no longer will my creation be subject to evil and sin. No, I'm going to win and we're going to celebrate with a wedding. It's not about fear. It's about hope. We've been asking two questions through the whole series. Where's Jesus? I'll tell you where he is according to Revelation 19. He's coming. Where's the hope? My Bible says he's coming soon. Are you ready? What? Are you ready? You know, I, I read this stuff and I think to myself, fear is just the worst reason ever to come to God. I'm not talking about respecting Him as God, but, but when you're just driven there out of fear because you're afraid of the end times, that's a terrible reason to come to Jesus because we know how that works, right? That lasts as long as the moment when fear is alleviated. You know what is a compelling reason for me to come to Christ? It's not to avoid anything that's going to happen in the end times. It's, it's just to ally, ally myself with the love that Jesus gave for me. It would seem crazy to me to talk about him coming back and not give people an opportunity to accept the wedding invitation. So we're going to do that today. Somebody asked me earlier, say, okay, Grant, we've tackled the most controversial book in the Bible. What are we going to do next? I don't know. I think maybe Song of Solomon. That could be kind of interesting, right? <laughs> the reality is we're not done yet. The story actually gets better over the next three chapters. And God so desperately doesn't want any of us to miss it. So I wanted to give everyone an opportunity this morning to accept the wedding invitation. To have your name written in the Lamb's Book of Life so you know absolutely, unequivocally, 100% for sure that my life belongs to Jesus and the reason it belongs to Jesus is because He captured my heart and now I've captured His. 
So would you pray with me this morning? Every head bowed and every eye closed. As we pray, just for a moment, I'd love to pray with those of you who already know Christ, you have a personal relationship with Him. Could we take just a moment in the quietness of this place and say thank you? God, thank you for loving me. Thank you for forgiving me. Thank you for washing me as white as snow. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to wear white when I know I don't deserve it. Thank you for mercy. Thank you for Jesus who covered it all. As God's kids, can we just take a moment and say, Lord, thank you for the wedding invitation. Can we just RSVP? As the people of God are just filled with gratitude, I'd love to take just a moment and pray with those who maybe have never had a relationship with Christ. My Bible says he loved you so much that God gave his one and only son to give you an opportunity to walk through the grace of mercy or the door of mercy, the door of grace. That he sent Jesus here to take all of your sin on his life and to pay for it with his life on the cross so that you could have this moment. And if you're here today and you've never received Christ as your Savior, I'm going to invite you to pray with me right now. A simple prayer, a prayer of faith. It says, Jesus, I don't understand all of this, but I know that I am a sinner. I know that I've lived my life for myself and not for you. And right now, not because of fear, but because I love you. I ask you to forgive my sin. Wash me as white as snow. Wrap me in a white robe. And forgive me. God, I, I come to you broken. And I thank you that you are a God who restores. So right now, I give you all of me, the rest of my life, every day. And I ask for the courage to live my life the way you would have me live it. I confess with my mouth and believe in my heart that you came, that you lived, that you died, that you rose again, and that you're coming back again someday, hopefully soon. So I give myself fully and completely to you. I ask that you would be my King of kings and my Lord of lords. And I thank you for giving me what I don't deserve. With every head bowed, every eye closed, just a quiet moment. If you prayed that prayer, we believe you received a wedding invitation. And that you've been forgiven and set free and that God has written your name in the Lamb's book of life and now you get to live for Him for the rest of your days. We believe something miraculous has happened inside of you. So if you prayed that prayer, I would never do anything to embarrass you, but I'd love to pray for you this week. Would you just slip your hand up in the air? Just stick your hand straight up so I can see you. God bless you. You and you. God bless you. God bless both of you right down here in the front. God bless you. God bless you. God bless you. God bless you. 
God bless you. God bless you all the way in the back. God bless you guys. God, thank you that the door's not closed. That the door of grace and mercy is wide open. And I thank you for those who've given their hearts to you today. Lord, I thank you for the honor it's been to just to watch you work in this room this morning. God, I thank you that you are coming back and you will come back triumphant in that moment. And I thank you that you've added a few more to that glorious return. God, I pray that they would allow us to be their church, that that they'd allow us to walk with them as they take these first steps in their relationship with Jesus. God, I pray in Jesus' name that their life would be forever changed, not because of what they've done for you, but because of what you've done for them. And we give you all of the praise and all of the glory as the God who has orchestrated all of this. And all of God's people agreed together and said, Amen. Amen.